you don't read your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, while you're turning there, I just want to encourage you again, uh, if you're able to, to come this evening. Uh, a few times we've had a, a scientist come and speak. When scientist comes and speaks as scientist, we imagine that it would be boring. It's not. Uh, and again, um, my belief, which I, I believe is correct, is that Again, the Bible is true in every way. And that science, true science, always points to God. And we have many, many highly intellectual, highly educated scientists that know this and are able to talk about the science and do research and deal with all the various issues that are out there to reveal, again, that Oftentimes what we hear uh, in various ways throughout our culture is just incorrect. And it can be proven to be incorrect. And that science continues to show that the Bible has always been true. Uh, and so I would encourage you to come uh, this evening and uh, hear Dr. S uh, Sarfati. I think I said that right. Uh, but uh, I think that it would be well worth your time, uh, to say the least. Let's pray. Father, as always, we want to continue our worship as we now focus on your word. We pray, O oh Lord, you would grant us, as always, understanding of scripture. We pray, Lord, these things will continue to weave their way so that they will be deeply implanted in our hearts and minds. The Father, the way that we think that what we think, the way that we uh, decide things, the way that we seek to understand the world around us will all be filtered through the truth of the word of God. And so, Father, we desire our hearts and minds to be challenged and changed by Scripture. And we ask, Lord, that your Spirit would use these things in our lives for your good and for your glory. And we do ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. So looking in particular at verses 19 and 20, Herod's di Herod dies, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream uh, while they're in Egypt, take the child, get out of Egypt, go back to Israel, because all those who are looking for, uh, you know, to, to take the life, which we talked about the slaughter of the innocents basically last week, uh, they have died. So again, as we mentioned last week, Joseph immediately obeys because Joseph was a righteous man. Uh, his righteousness was exhibited by his obedience to the divine commands. Uh, there's no hesitation. There's no, is God really saying this? We've just gotten here. We're now established. Now we've got to move again. There's none of that. He just does exactly what God says. So let me give you some background. And as we work our way through Matthew, I'm always going to give you some background. Uh, I think the background helps us as we imagine what is going on. Uh, the, the, the narrative that is here is, you know, whenever you read through history, normally those who are the best historians are able to help draw pictures with their words to help us to visualize and to have a greater sense 
of whatever is going on there at that time as far as what they're describing. And so Matthew is doing the same thing, but he's, but he's writing to an audience that is already familiar with these things. And so we need to look at the background and maybe some of the words and kind of maybe look some things up and try to put more of a historical context to this just so we can kind of get a flavor for what's happening. So Herod the Great dies. When Herod the Great dies, there was a dispute that arose between his uh, three surviving sons as to who should assume the throne. Now, when you read through most histories, they will say his three surviving sons. That's important because he's the one who killed the others. It wasn't because there was a disease or whatever. He had killed them. Right? Herod was, he was whacked out. Right? This guy was nuts. He was insane. Uh, anyone who, he's just jealous of anybody who might be a threat to the throne, and he's going to have him killed. If you've done any reading uh, about Saddam Hussein, uh, he was the same way. I mean, he would, you know, they, in his army, if there was an up-and-coming officer who was brilliant and was, you know, helping to make an army a, a better-functioning army under Saddam, and it was reported to him about these men and how, you know, this, this man needs to be promoted. We need to watch this guy. You know, he's got this going on and that going on. Saddam Hussein would, you know, you know, kind of go along with it and then put a contract out on him and have him killed. And it kind of helped us understand why they were so easily defeated uh, when, uh, when we moved in, you know, when we basically went back to, to, uh, to save Kuwait. His army was just inept in every way. Uh, he, was just, he, was, he was just crazy like that. And just life means nothing. And not even your, not even your own family, and you would kill him. And so that's... that's Herod's got three surviving sons, which makes you immediately, which you should, wonder what they're like if that was their dad. Herod's fifth will named his youngest son, Antipas, as king. However, a few days before he died, Herod wrote a sixth will. So if there were many lawyers back then, they were having a heyday with all of this. Archelaus was, uh, and, and this, this fifth will made Archelaus the king of Jude, uh, Judea. And Antipas was the tatriarch um, of Galilee. So just so that you will know, the word tatriarch, whether it, it can mean sovereign or governor, but basically the emphasis is a fourth part of the country. Whatever's going on, you divide it into fours. If you're a tatriarch, you're, you're over a fourth of it. And that's kind of what, what is meant by that term. So there's this dispute with the sons that eventually is settled by Caesar Augustus. During that time, there was a disruption in Jerusalem. There was an uprising at the temple. So Archelaus, he overreacted and he killed 3,000 Jewish pilgrims uh, using the Roman soldiers that were at his command. And so Archelaus was recognized as being just as brutal as his father. So because of the kind of ruler he was, that's why Joseph is like, wait a minute, this guy's ruling. I, I don't think I want to take my family back there. And so God then basically tells him, yeah, don't go there, you know, go to, to Nazareth. So by 6 AD, now Archelaus was disposed, and his territories became a Ro Roman province under the rule of prefect. So the word prefect, or procurator, or uh, the word governor would, would be just as accurate. They were basically, they were, an, they were an agent. That would be the Latin word, they were an agent. It refers to a person, normally they were a free citizen. They managed the estates and business affairs of the wealthy. So when we get to the point in Jesus' life where Pilate is on the scene, Pilate was the sixth Roman prefect or procreator of Judea. He's the sixth one. 
So the procreator, the, these guys, they were not connected with really public service until Augustus began to use men uh, of high status to manage his public finances of his, of his provinces. And that's really what these guys were all about. These prefects or these governors, their main thing was to manage the money and the wealth, uh, which would be of, of Caesar, uh, of those that were invested in that area. That was their main job. They were to keep order, but they were to, to manage money and basically increase the wealth. That's really what's, what's going on. So they were, they were private agents. They didn't really have any official power to enforce their own personal authority by judicial processes. Uh, they would have to depend upon tribunals of provincial governors and, and those types of things. Uh, so that's kind of the, the Roman makeup as to what's going on in, in the government. There was nothing really Joseph could do you know, the Jews had no standing. Unless you were a citizen of Rome, you're just at their mercy. And whatever they say goes, and that's what you have to go with. So these, these prefects, they, they weren't really given like a, an official Roman garrison um, or a, a legion to, uh, uh, to rule, except for the guys that were over in Egypt. But they were given anywhere from 500 to 1,000 soldiers. And that would be kind of like, I guess, federal police. Uh, and so whatever the prefect wants done, that's what they're going to do. Uh, he wants certain laws of force, they're going to do that. They need to quiet a riot, they're going to do that. They're going to do what he wants. They, 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 need, they need to give protection to a tax collector because people are giving him a hard time. They're going to go do that. That's what this guy is supposed to do. So again, his primary responsibility then was to maintain public order. But to maintain public order was being done so they could make money. That's, that's what it was all about. Uh, and so the, these prefects didn't really, they didn't really rule. They, they kind of managed the government as an executive. The government ran, they were just kind of, you know, almost middle management. So that's what's going on in all this mess uh, that, that's going on. So again, though, by the time that Joseph is told to move back to Israel, Archelaus, though, is still king of Judea. And so these prefects and all those guys don't come into play for another, you know, for a year or so, and then, and then all those things begin to change. But again, this is done purposely, and verse 23 tells us, and he went, that's Joseph, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. So just so you know a little bit about Nazareth. Nazareth was a village and was considered by everyone an unimportant village. It was located in Lower Galilee, about five miles from Cana, Jesus was often referred to as a Nazarene, and being called a Nazarene stigmatized him for the rest of his life. Now, I don't know if you are aware of this, but over in Europe, if you are a gypsy, or the other word they use is Roma, R-O-M-A, that stigmatizes you. you. Things don't go well for you if you are a gypsy. You, there are most jobs you can't get you're going to be treated poorly. Your whole, I mean, the, the prejudice uh, against uh, uh, gypsies by most of society and the government, you, you can see it, you can sense it, it's, it's there. Uh, and so that's kind of the idea with this, is that he was stigmatized. You're a Nazarene, people automatically had a negative view of you. They would look down on you as an individual. The Jews of Judea, they disdained Galilee Galileans themselves were considered materialistic. They were considered to be ignorant 
uh, of uh, spiritual matters. And so I want to read to you a passage from John 7. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to, I'm going to read verse 32 and then jump and read from 40 to 52 to kind of give us uh, a feel for how Nazareth and Nazarenes were viewed because that's important in how these individuals would look at Jesus and, and how they would think about Jesus. And then it's also important really in how we relate to Jesus today, which hopefully you'll see in a few moments. So in John 7, 32, it says, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, that would be about Jesus. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So Jesus at the temple, he's speaking. The Pharisees, they, they already, they, they don't like Jesus. Uh, they don't want to believe and they don't believe he's the Messiah. Part of what the Pharisees believed is, is at least many of them believed that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would be a Pharisee. It's pretty clear Jesus was not a Pharisee. And yet people were claiming he was the Messiah. And so things aren't going well as far as his popularity among the leadership. So they want him to be arrested. So, uh, and so this is where Jesus talks about living water and that type of thing. So jump into verse 40 of John 7. It says, and when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Now let me just stop there. Remember that when you read in our English translation, when they go, this is the Christ, they are basically saying, this is the Messiah. I want to make sure we make that connection all the time. This is the Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for, the one who's going to deliver them. That they are, they are, people are coming together, they are hearing what he says, they're looking at what he does, and they're starting to come to this conclusion that this is the Messiah, this is the guy. Others said, maybe but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? They're like, whoa, whoa, hold on a minute. This guy's from Galilee. The, the Messiah? The Messiah's going to come from there? Now, I, you know, it's always hard to make fun of different states in our country because somebody may be sitting out there from that state and you get offended. But you have to know that there are certain states that people kind of look down on. So if somebody has a real thick accent and they're in government and they're from West Virginia, we kind of doubt, or at least in the beginning, we're going to doubt their intelligence. I'm not saying that if they're from West Virginia, they're dumb, but that there's a stigma, you know, attached to that. So it's the same kind of idea. You have to overcome those things. So here when they're saying, yeah, there's this Messiah, oh, hold on. The Messiah is going to come from Galilee? I think you need to go check your brains because that, that's not possible. Verse 42, has not the scripture said that the Christ or that the Messiah comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? The village where David was, which by the way, Christ was from there, but anyway. Uh, but so they knew the Bible, and they're saying, no, 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 no. He doesn't come from Galilee, he comes from Bethlehem. This guy's from David. 43. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on, on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers said, no one has ever spoken like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So you can see the arrogance here among the Pharisees. You know, they've sent these guys to go arrest Jesus. They come back empty-handed. They're like, what are you doing? They go, 
It's like, you know, boss, no one, no one has ever spoken like this guy. This guy is amazing. And they're mad. They go, so you're deceived like the rest? Basically, are you a moron? How can you stand there? Are you even thinking? What's happening to you? And this, the crowd, they're cursed. They don't know the law. We, we know the law. We know what's going on. Basically, do what we say. You don't think. We think. We tell you to do. You do. That's kind of how this system is supposed to work as far as the Pharisees are concerned. Verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, remember that's, that's John 3, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Really? Well, Hosea, Jonah, Elijah, Elisha, Nahum, all from Galilee. All prophets. You would think, at least with Elijah and Elisha, you know, pretty powerful men. These guys, you know, they, so these guys are using this rhetoric, trying to use force of language, their position, putting someone on the spot, assuming you're not going to be able to think quick on your feet, basically make this statement which is blatantly wrong. No prophet comes out of Galilee. They kind of, but they don't know what they're talking about. You know, sometimes it happens to us, you know, if you get into a debate with somebody and they talk with a lot of confidence and they're talking very rapidly and you're, you're trying to think on your feet and they make statements that you know, like, you know, on Monday, then on Tuesday, man, they were completely wrong. Why didn't I think of that yesterday? You know, they just kind of put you on there. That can happen to us sometimes. But just because someone says something with confidence and just because someone has a, some prestige behind them doesn't mean they're right. It doesn't mean that. Just because someone's a so-called expert doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that what they're saying is true. But that's what these guys have done. So they say no prophet arises from Galilee. They're just wrong on that. Not only did the Jews of Judea disdain those from Galilee, then the Galileans looked down on those who came from Nazareth. So Nazareth is just the, Nazareth is the pit. You don't want to be from Nazareth. Nazareth was a town of ill repute, a lot of prostitutes. I guess if you were to look at it like a, a town today that was just totally falling apart, that would be where the prostitutes, the drug dealers, the drug, all of them, you know, that's where they all hang out. That would be Nazareth. That's how Nazareth is viewed. It was the base of a Roman garrison. Uh, the Jews who lived in Nazareth were viewed as traitors. Because you lived in Nazareth. You were a traitor to Israel. You were a traitor to your people. In fact, remember this. Let me read to you from John chapter 1, verse 45 and 46. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So when we ask him that rhetorical question, the assumed answer is no, absolutely not. So remember, when, when, when Philip introduces Jesus to Nathanael, he calls him Jesus of Nazareth. That's kind of like his title. He's, he's associated with that town. So settling in Nazareth made Jesus a despised and rejected individual before he did and said anything. 
He's already from the wrong side of town. He's already going to be looked down upon by really everyone. Everyone's going to look down on him. But let me read to you two passages that you are probably familiar with. Isaiah 49, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by that nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. What did it say about the Holy One? He was deeply despised and he was abhorred by the nation. Verse, uh, verse 3 of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Again, in verse 23 back in, in Matthew, he says that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he was um, a Nazarene. Uh, there's a problem with that. With all this background we've given, we have to go back to Matthew because there's a problem. They, the, the, it says, Matthew says in the prophets that he should be called a Nazarene. The problem is this. There's no Old Testament prophecy that states that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. So why does Matthew say that? Why would he say that? Well, a way to put this, to help us understand, is this is, I guess you would look at what we might call a fulfillment formula. It's a little different because he says here what is spoken of by the prophets. So he doesn't say prophet. He's not putting anyone. He just says this is what's spoken of by the prophets. It's plural. And so it, it makes a suggestion here. And the suggestion is in Matthew that the Messiah's identity as a Nazarene was part of a theme belonging to several prophetic books. So what is the theme about the Messiah from all these different prophetic books? Because it's consistent. And it's what we just mentioned. He is despised. He is rejected. He is looked down upon. That's what's going on with him. That, that's how he's viewed by others. He is, he's not popular because of where he comes from. There's, in one essence, you know, he, he's, we already know this. He, he wasn't born to a wealthy family. He was not born into a prestigious family. And he wasn't raised in the right place. He didn't go to the right schools. He didn't do any of those kinds of things. He's this carpenter, and he's from this horrible place, and nothing good comes from there. We can't even imagine anything coming from there. We can't even imagine anything halfway good coming from there, much less the Messiah. That's who he is. And again, the theme is that he would be despised, rejected. He would not be viewed with any respect or any admiration. Now here, this is, this is what's important about all of this. Jesus was not a man who was acquainted with sorrows and who was despised and rejected because he read about it in a book and he can understand. He lived it out. He experienced this on a daily basis. We sometimes, we don't mean to, but we can sometimes imagine Jesus as being this individual that everything just rolls off his back, like water rolls off the back of a duck. As if somehow he didn't really have any real emotions. He had real emotions. Now, we always have to be careful, because you don't want, you know, we've been this, you know, when you start speculating as to what Jesus was like, 
You want to be careful with that. We, we, we definitely cannot be dogmatic. But we do know he's a human being. And we do know that with a human being, when you are despised and rejected and you are betrayed and all the rest, you do have emotional feelings. Now, he did not allow those feelings to rule him. He didn't live by them. But it doesn't mean he did not experience them. Now, the reason why I'm saying that is this is important. So that when you and I go through these experiences, which we're going to talk about in, again in just a moment, we need to recognize that Jesus does truly understand. This is not someone who, again, only has understanding academically and can pat us on the back and say, be of good cheer. This is one who has lived through this. He has experienced these things. No one likes to be despised and looked down on. There was a, a, a fad, uh, at least for a while, within the church among pastors. Not, not all pastors, but, but many. And there was this fad where pastors more and more wanted to be looked upon as CEOs of their church. Like literally the title, CEO. I have heard pastors tell people when you introduce me, you will introduce me as the CEO and pastor of, I won't tell you where. I've heard them say that. And in reading different books and they're talking about this, the idea is that it seemed that at one time in our country's history, in many small towns, the best educated person was the pastor. He had the guy with the highest degree. When you need almost any kind of information, that's the guy you go to. Anything needs to be figured out. That's the guy you go to. He had a lot of prestige because of that. And so he had a lot of respect. Well, through the years, it's kind of changed. And now sometimes people say, oh, you're a pastor? Just like that. I know that because I've seen that face when I tell people, oh, I'm a pastor. You know, not everybody does that. They go, oh, what you get sometimes is, really? <laughs> you know, like, huh? All right, but, but there's, not a whole, there's not always, in fact, there's less and less respect in general for, for that. And so no one likes to experience that. Now it doesn't have to really affect you, but it does affect you in the sense that you actually, you do feel it. No one likes that. You feel like you have to defend yourself. You know? I'm a pastor. I really am a human being. I, I, I know how to read. I, I know some things. You know, I'm not some, you know, moron who can't do anything else. You know, kind of a thing. You, you want to defend yourself. You, you don't, but you know, there, you have those, you experience that. So here's the thing that's important. Jesus knew sorrow and loneliness. When he was on earth, no one really ever understood him. Not his parents, not his family, not his closest friends. Jesus had no one in whom he could fully confide. There was no other human being who could know him or sympathize with him completely because no one else was like him. What is it like when even your, the members of your own family criticize you? How does it feel when even your closest friends turn on you, betray you, or desert you just when you need them the most? Jesus knew all of those sorrows. Remember the Bible says he was acquainted with grief. When it came to his disciples, who were his closest companions, in whom he had invested years of his life, they failed to understand or even sympathize with him. They had insight that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, 
And even that was distorted. On their final journey to Jerusalem, when Jesus was preparing himself for the cross, his disciples were arguing about who would sit closest to him when he sat on the throne. Who would have the most important post in the great new Jewish empire? They huddled together in the Garden of Gethsemane a few nights later. Jesus asked them to sit up and pray. It was like he, he felt he needed this last hour of fellowship and support as he wrestled with what was going to be coming in the coming hours. They fell asleep. Then when the crisis struck, one of them betrayed him, another denied him, and they all deserted him. Every single one of them. Jesus knew the sorrow of rejection. What happens when the very people you are most trying to help have no use for you? He came to his own people in saving love, and most of them turned on him. Matthew tells us near the end of his earthly life, Jesus' heart broke as he stood on the hill outside of Jerusalem, and he looked down on the city, and he said, How often I have longed to gather your children together, but you are not willing. He wept, not so much for what they were doing to him, as for what their rejection of him would do to them. Jesus was a man of many sorrows. It's a matter of simple fact. But it was also much more than that. I can't tell you how much, I can't tell you how much comfort there is in this historical truth, but think about this. God himself is a man of sorrows. So this Nazarene that they're talking about, this, you know, when, when you live your life that way, but you are actually great, and you're going to accomplish great things. You know, you want to hold that up so they will see it. You want to say, see what I've become. See what you miss. It's kind of like a, a revenge. Jesus, he didn't do any of those things. None of that. You know, there's a song we sing. We don't really sing it all that often, but there's a song that basically goes like he could have called 10,000 angels. And the idea behind that is when he was hanging on the cross and they were calling him names and they were spitting on him, he could have at that moment called 10,000 angels and just wiped them out. Knowing myself personally, I would have done that. But Jesus was there for us knowing what it would take for our salvation. I don't think that thought ever entered his mind. It's an amazing thing when we recognize that. Suffering is often a mystery to us. We don't understand why when it strikes. Some people do seem to be spared of a lot of pain and sorrow in life. For them, the sun is always shining. They live and love. They work and play and laugh. They're scarcely touched by trouble and loss. But Jesus was not one of those people. He was one of the others. One of many whose souls was rubbed raw with suffering. When the prophet named him centuries before his birth, he called him a man of sorrows. He could have called him a man of eloquence because no one ever spoke like Jesus did. They could have called him a man of love because love motivated everything he ever did and every word he ever uttered. He could have called him a man of holiness because he was per perfect and pure in every way, but he didn't. He was called a man of sorrows. The ancient Stoics, if you know anything about being a Stoic, valued one quality more than all the others, and they strove to achieve it in their lives. Apathy which basically means non-feeling. Their response, the response of a Stoic to all suffering of the world was just to block it out, to harden themselves so that it could not touch or move them in any way. 
Their defense against the pain of life was to try to not care about it, anything, or anyone. But God is not stoic. He does not value apathy. He is not aloof. He is not remote. He is not unfeeling. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the God who is also man, has felt what it is to suffer. He feels it. What kind of suffering do you know? What kind of suffering has been in my life? Maybe you've had the heart-stopping, gut-wrenching pain of an officer standing at your door at night with a blue light shining in the driveway. Or a phone call in the night or a report back from the lab that's bearing bad news. The man of sorrows is acquainted with that grief. Maybe you've experienced the agony of having someone you love, someone you trusted, fail you or betray you or reject you or desert you or maybe all of it. Well, all that happened to Jesus. He has been broken and bewildered. He cried out to God when he felt abandoned. So it should be a relief to know that this is what God is like. It means that, again, whenever you and I come to God, whenever sorrow comes to any of us, God not only cares, but he truly does understand. He is not aloof from our pain. God, the infinite God of the universe, can actually sympathize with us because he knows exactly what pain is like. So it means then if your life is suddenly shattered, you don't have to put on a front to pretend everything's okay. You don't have to deny your sorrow or try to drown them with a flood of alcohol or tranquilizers or distract yourself with some kind of feverish activity or work. God not only accepts our happy praises, God also hears and accepts our laments, our cries, and our questions. He promises that someday in Christ, it will all be turned into songs of joy. So we need to realize then that to reject the Lord Jesus Christ is to reject the only hope of life. And that's what many do. It's what many still do. Christ comes with the news of forgiveness and peace with God and a summons to find those things by turning to him in faith. He came to show us the love of God and the very nature of God in his own person. He came to ultimately offer himself as a sacrifice to rescue people from sin and death and to bring them eternal life. And they said that he was drunk. They said he was crazy. They said he was demon-possessed. They said he was a blasphemer. They spat on him. They laughed at his agony. They taunted him to his face. They beat him bloody. And then they finally crucified him. Christ comes today with the same message of salvation whenever and wherever the truth about him is proclaimed. People today still laugh at Christ. They mock his life. They mock his death. They use his name only to curse. They pour scorn on those who believe in him and confess faith in Christ. Take comfort in this if you are a believer, that Christ understands every single ounce of suffering you may ever experience. And he is there for you, giving you and me very real comfort. And his promises remain true. For those who do not know Christ, for those who are rejecting Christ, because if you do not believe in Christ, you are rejecting him. You are rejecting again the only source of comfort and help there is. 
the only one who can truly understand is him. The only one who can truly do something about it is him. And so I'll encourage you today, as always, to examine your life, to make sure that you know Christ. When you, if you are aware of others that are going through times of difficulty, if they are not believers, do not necessarily ask for the Lord to alleviate their pain and suffering. I'm not saying ask the Lord to make it worse, but ask the Lord to kind of put a spotlight on it, to make them more aware of maybe their own helplessness, to make them more aware of the despair. They may have to sink lower when they get to that point to where God rescues them, when they finally recognize they need to be rescued. What a glorious awakening that is. And so ask God to bring them to that point. Be ready to share with them the gospel of Christ. It, it is a simple message, again, that the world will always mock. And you may even feel at that moment that what you're offering them just isn't much, but you actually know it's everything. And don't be afraid if they reject that and maybe even mock you then or maybe later. Where they may tell their friends, I can't believe that they were telling me about Jesus. Like, that's going to help me. Expect that to happen. That and worse has already been experienced by Christ. And he's told us to expect those things. And he will be there to strengthen you, and to comfort you. We will be resilient because we know the truth, because we have God, because we know God. And we can stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we always thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, for the truth of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that in every way it is examined, it is true, and it can stand up to scrutiny, and that we have this assurance that what we believe is true in every way, and that what others claim to be true, what other religions claim is the truth, we can examine it, we can look at it, and we can see that there are faults, that there are inconsistencies, that it is illogical, that it is irrational, or that it even denies science. We thank you, Father, that the gospel is true historically. It is true in every way. And we thank you that our soul is anchored in Christ. I pray, Father, for those of us who are believers that we will be strengthened by your spirit because of the truth of your word. And as always, we pray for those who don't know Christ. And we do pray that they will be disturbed. Not because we want them to be because we want to see them suffer. But Father, we know the way, and we know the way to you is often through pain and suffering. First, to recognize our plight. So Father, we ask that in your great patience, you will draw them to yourself and help them to see their need for Jesus. As always, we thank you, Father, for not leaving us to ourselves, but for intervening in our lives. We do praise your name, Father, and we do ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.